All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Good times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to be with you once again. I'm talking to you, as usual, from the Borough of Queens in New York City on the fourth day of January 2022. We want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. also like to encourage you to send along whatever you, comments you have about this show to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. This week's sponsors are Novo Resources, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Lion One Metals, SK Mining Corp., uh, El Oro Resources, Firefox Gold, and Timberline Resources. I've titled today's show, Why Gold's 2021 Disappointment. Why? Why did we have a disappointment in 2021 for gold and silver when everything else seemed to be lining up in favor of the precious metals? And what about 2022? Alistair McLeod, Michael Hudson, and Michael Oliver return as guests this week. 2021 was indeed a disappointing year for profit-seeking precious metals investors but for the few who look to accumulate gold and silver as the ultimate insurance against runaway inflation, it has been an unexpected bonus. After reviewing the current year to gain a perspective for 2022, Alistair McLeod will analyze the cause for the decline in the value of the true market-driven money, namely gold and silver, measured in fake money, that is fake fiat money, dollars and other currencies that are uh, required to be used by governments around the world. And Alistair uh, will be with me in the second half of today's show uh, when he will provide a summary of the outlook uh, for the dollar, the euro, and the financial system, as well as the outlook for gold and silver driven by those factors. Um, one hint is the key issue is the interest rate outlook and how it will impact financial markets. Alistair believes markets are wholly unprepared for the consequences of the massive expansion of currency and credit over the la- over the next uh, couple of years, uh, not to mention the, the last couple of years. So also, uh, Alistair will touch on geopolitical factors uh, that come into play, especially regarding China and, and Russia on the one hand, the United States uh, on the other side of that uh, growing tension. Um, in the second segment, Michael Hudson will join me, and just uh, right after our first commercial break, to talk about Hannon Metals' discovery in Peru. It's uh, they are on to what looks like one of the largest uh, sedimentary-hosted uh, copper and silver deposits. Well, we can't call it a deposit yet, targets, but evidence of a massive uh, sedimentary-hosted near-surface target. Uh, that Michael Hudson will talk about uh, right after our first commercial break. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me 
to share his latest thoughts on the markets as we head into this, uh, well, as we're ready in this 2022, what can we look forward to going uh, into this year? Thank you for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with us, and it's OliverMSA.com for those of you who should really check out Michael's work and sign up for one of his services at least. Um, okay, so you spent some time in your last weekly, uh, your 360 letter that comes out on Saturday or Sunday, usually Sunday, I believe, and it said uh, you, the, front, the lead article or the lead uh, topics were the equity markets and with a focus on the S&P and the NASDAQ. 100, and I see the NASDAQ was down pretty hard earlier today. Uh, what do you see? I mean, there have been an awful lot of people for several years now who have thought that the equity markets are overpriced, but that's not to say they can't become a lot more overpriced. Uh, do you think that might be the case in 2022? No, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, the, um, they're overpriced, okay? And we also, when you go to your computer screen, Go to a monthly time scale, type in the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100 and take a look at it. And look at the bear market. Remember the devastating bear market of 2000 to 2002, the dot-com bubble broke. Okay. Go uh-huh. back and look at that on that chart that includes data up to date. Then go look at the 2007-2009 bear market. You could barely see those bear trends on the uh-huh. monthly price chart. Uh-huh. They hardly show up, and yet they were devastating. We uh-huh. have, sure. without a doubt, the biggest technical bubble and probably fundamental bubble in stock market history. And it's been propelled by investors moving the money where the Fed wanted them to move it, namely into stocks uh, and to certain other assets like uh, junk corporate bonds and so forth. Uh, and they've done it for 12-plus years. And the problem is that history shows that investor preferences can shift. And it's our view that when you start to fracture the stock market, and our, our argument is we've got technical reasons based on long-term momentum that say you can't afford right now a several percent, let's call it 4 or 5% drop in the stock market. If you do, we're going to blow so many long-term momentum trend structures that it will say to us, okay, that was the top of the bubble. Mm-hmm. Now, Usually when bubbles break, they're pretty nasty. That doesn't mean they crash. In fact, the 2000, 2002, there was never a crash in that. 2007 to 2009, uh, hardly you could find any point in there that was the dimension of what you call a crash. So we could start a major bear market that deflates this overpriced asset class, and a lot of that money will start to move elsewhere. And we've already seen it uh, late last year, last summer and fall. We, we came out with reports arguing for a commodity, quote, explosion. Well, we got one. Uh, basically, you had a doubling in price from around 50-something on the Bloomberg Commodity Index up to 106. But when you stand back and look at it, you know, well, everybody gets scared by the, quote, commodity inflation. The Fed doesn't like that. They like stock inflation. Mm-hmm. They won't admit that term, but they, they, they like that. Or they like junk bond inflation. They don't like it when it goes into commodities. So commodities woke up without, in, in other words, and some investors said, okay, I'm going to move into a low-priced asset category that's not going to go to zero. And it's been beat up for so long that it, the risk is off the page in terms of uh, being definable, and there's, therefore there's only reward. Uh, but when you look at the Bloomberg, it's really only one-third of the way back up to the price highs it saw in, in uh, 2011. 
Mm-hmm. Now, gold, we know, peaked also in 2011 and collapsed 50%. Bloomberg collapsed more than that. But Bloomberg's only a third of the way back to the high, and mm-hmm. everybody's screaming, how come gold's not exploding? <laughs> uh-huh. Gold doubled from its 2015 low and is trading on either side of the peak monthly closes in 2011. So gold mm-hmm. is still well ahead when you stand back and look at the big vista mm-hmm. of the commodity price explosion. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's gained, it doubled, and it's holding its ground here. The, the peak monthly close in 2011 was 1825. We mm-hmm. closed last month at 1828.60. Okay. And everybody's talking about how bad year it was for gold. Gold dropped 3.5% yeah. December to December close. Mm-hmm. Okay? So mm-hmm. it, it wasn't that bad of a year. Yes, yeah. the miners got beat up, and silver got beat up more, you know, percent basis. But mm-hmm. uh, by our metrics, they're still intact for more upside. In fact, we've got some numbers that aren't too far above the market that we want to see achieved uh, mm-hmm. that will indicate that silver and the miners are now in gear with what gold, I think, has done in the last quarter, which was crossed mm-hmm. some numbers that we thought were pretty important. But we also wanted to see silver agree with it, and the miners agree with it, and they didn't. They came mm-hmm. up close to our numbers but failed to cross them. Now, those mm-hmm. numbers, those breakout numbers that we defined via our own proprietary methods have adjusted down for this quarter. Mm-hmm. It won't take a large rally at all for those metrics to be crossed, in which case then we see a chorus that says gold, silver, and miners all agree we're going back up. So mm-hmm. That's what we're watching. But I think the pivotal asset category to watch is the stock market, also the junk corporate bond market. Uh, if those mm-hmm. asset categories start to break, now they'll break our numbers before they alarm anybody else, but if they start to concern analysts, uh, investors, and so forth with doubt, not mm-hmm. necessarily with great pain, but with, you know, gee, what's going on here? Yeah. If that starts to occur, the Fed's going to get nervous because mm-hmm. that's an asset category that is off the page, bubbled, and if it starts to come undone, the Fed will have the greatest chore it ever had in its history, <laughs> mm-hmm. trying to save a bubble collapse that they created themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah. it's, it, it's going to be an intellectual problem for them, and it's going to be like sitting in a movie theater with some popcorn and laughing, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, because they've created yeah. a situation of their own, you know, their own construction that could come unwound. And I think if we see those categories start to break down, that's when more and more investors are going to say, okay, I want to shift some money. Mm-hmm. So how are the uh, the gold and silver shares uh, looking right now? I know on the gold, uh, you, GDX, GDX and GDXJ, are they anywhere near some important uh, yeah, trigger a points? points? In fact, the high we made in November, if you go look at your charts and you see the silver high was up at uh, 24 uh, no, it was, excuse me, 25.50 area. Uh-huh. Uh, and they failed to close over a certain level that we needed to see exceeded on a weekly close to generate a, what we call a quarterly buy signal. So they failed to do it, though gold did. But silver didn't agree. So then we dropped back down. But now that number has adjusted, and I won't get real specific because that's what our subscribers pay for, but it won't take a lot uh, above... The recent high, the high of this, of where we closed last month, which was twenty three fifty area, um, you, you get up about a dollar above there. It's going to look pretty good. So you don't have to go back to the November highs that we saw mm-hmm. in the gold miners, 
the rally mm-hmm. high that failed, and which was above 35 on GDX, for example. We don't have to go above there to break out. And mm-hmm. silver got up to 24, excuse me, 20, in the mid-25s. You don't have to get back mm-hmm. there to break out via our metrics, mm-hmm. in which case we will issue a report saying, okay, we're full, it's a full court press now. All the, mm-hmm. the metals are in agreement. And uh, I think that probably will be somewhat coincident with the fracturing of the stock market. Mm-hmm. Uh, fracturing of our numbers, that is. And again, our mm-hmm. numbers aren't that far below. So you get to our trigger numbers, and we're not going to have alarm in the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. You won't be breaking stuff that's too obvious, but for us, mm-hmm. it'll be obvious. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, we can say, okay, there's an asset class shift underway here that's going to gain steam. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the... fracture Fed, Fed assumptions and policies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and confidence is lost and. It, it it seems to me that a logical place, and maybe I'm talking my book. I know I I know I'm always bullish on, on gold and gold shares, and um, to a fault sometimes. But I think that um, the what we do know from a fundamental point of view is that the earnings are extremely strong for the gold miners, the senior, the mm-hmm. big boys. They're doing extremely well. Their balance sheets have never been stronger, at least in recent decades, uh, and they're earning lots of money at current gold prices. So. Gold, you know, as you say, it's not as disappointing as some of us bulls felt it was last year. But nonetheless, um, you know, it's it just seems that would be, you know, when people start looking around, where can I go for safety? Um, that's what they start thinking when things fall apart. I wonder, the uh, equity market starts to crumble and where are they going to go? The other thing I wanted to ask you, Michael, it's just a minute left here. The U.S. dollar uh, if we get a meltdown in the equity market, I don't meltdown however you want to describe it, a, a bear market in equities, that usually pretends a bear, a bull market for the dollar. A lot of times it does because there's so much short covering that has to be done, dollar, dollar short covering a, around the world. Yeah, I'll disagree. Pardon me. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Sure. If you go no. back and really look at it over uh-huh. 50 years of dollar index action and S&P action, the correlation is not that good. And now uh-huh. there is the memory in everybody's mind of last March, March of 2020, excuse me, where there was mm-hmm. a brief panic in the final days of the stock market drop collapse, where the dollar, there was a panic to buy dollars. Mm-hmm. As soon as that pan- that was based on the, the need for dollars for certain uh, categories of, of debt that had to be covered. Exactly. So, but it was exactly. a very brief panic. As soon as that was over, the dollar immediately collapsed back down. And mm-hmm. if you go back over the last year plus, you'll find there's a high correlation between dollar index movement on the upside, which has been positive on monthly momentum, just like the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would argue right now that what the dollar just did today, yesterday, the low that it made, it dropped about 20, 30 decimal points and then took off to the upside again, again, back in a range where we've been for several months, by the way, 96 area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go back through the low of the month, <clears throat> Approach 95 again, let's define it that way, uh, on the dollar index. And I think it's over. Mm-hmm. We have enough technical argument at that point to say the dollar not only is the monthly momentum trend that's been underway for more than a year, mm-hmm. uh, much like the S&P 500, is going to go down. And I think it will correlate to the S&P. Also, I don't think we're going to get a crash mm-hmm. event in the stock market which means uh, we're not going to get a replica of that spike that occurred in the dollar index back in March of 2020 to the upside. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, I, they, they look technically to be in sync with each other now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would, 
that that harsh memory of March of 2020, no doubt everybody remembers because it, it was mm-hmm. very sharp. But I think mm-hmm. that was a, a, a deviation, actually. Mm-hmm. And a short, uh, a short response. And a very short a trigger, too, as well. Short yeah. mm-hmm. But they might, uh, some of that money could also go into T-bonds then, or at what point do you think the T-bond yeah, market? I don't trust might. T-bonds long-term or T-notes. Yeah. Uh, nor the, the German bonds, nor the JGB bonds. Yeah. Uh, they look like they're going to go down, rates are going to go up. But I would hesitate being short that market. I would watch it and use it as a, as a means of measurement of certain things. But I think if there is a brief drop in the stock market of, oh, let's say 10% dimension type of thing, you could get a panic buying temporarily of asset managers simply parking money in long bonds. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a flight to safety. In other words, when they get panicked, what do they do? You know, there's two places they generally go. One would be gold. The other is the T-bonds. Ultimately, I don't think T-bonds will do well. I think their prices will go down. Yields will go up. But I think there's, there is a distinct risk of a sharp upside spike in price if the stock market uh, gets a shin broken, okay? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and therefore, it's sort of an unsafe position to have, I think, right now. Now, mm-hmm. if there were such a spike in T-bonds to the upside, yield drop, mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. the brief, you know, the first initial drop in the stock market, let's say, mm-hmm. at that point, maybe you can look at T-bonds as a short position. But right now, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little yeah. squeamish on no, that. That's, oh, yeah. Uh, which, is, which, of course, a... if T-bonds do turn into a bear, which I think they ultimately will because of monetary inflation ultimately is going to catch up to them. Uh, That leaves one alternative. Mm -hmm. Gold. Gold. Yeah. All right. So real quickly, Michael, uh, higher or lower at the end of 2022? Gold, silver? Oh, higher, higher, much higher. higher. Uh, A dollar? A dollar? Dollar lower. Um, U.S.T. bonds? I'm going to guess the dollar, uh, dollar, which is now in the mid-90s, could be in the mid-70s without a lot of effort. Whoa. Uh, You know, in in a span of a year or two. Yeah. Yeah. That would be very devastating for a lot of markets. Should also put yep. some wind at the back of gold and silver and commodities in general, I would think. I would just say that I saw a chart. I'm not sure what commodity index was used, but the chart showed commodities relative to the equity markets are still almost as low, if not as low as ever. Um, yes. I think it was measured against equities because equities have just taken off, you know. Uh, good inflation as far as the Fed's concerned and Nancy Pelosi's concerned. It's great. Wonderful inflation. But don't yep. let the cost of their uh, whatever they buy go up a little bit. And, and they and they could care less about the millions of average people. Anyway, that's just a little editorializing from my point of view. Uh, Mike, I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Always of great value. Thank you so much. Thank and we'll you, let you do it again in a couple of weeks. Folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Michael Hudson will be with us, president of Hannon Metals. And uh, Boy, if you'd like to speculate on exploration stocks, this is one you might want to keep your eyes on because it's selling it for pennies. It's got $20 million market cap, and it's got a huge uh, target. It's a sedimentary-hosted near-surface copper-silver belt. It looks very, very promising. Uh, It's in Peru, but Michael will be with us to talk about all of those uh, issues right after breaks that don't go away. As 
ESK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQB is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, funding in place, and shareholders such as Eric Sprott, SK Mining is on the cusp of a world-class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm very pleased to tell you that Michael Hudson is with me. He is the chairman and CEO of Hannon Metals. That's a company that I think has a shot at becoming one of the biggest gainers covered in my newsletter in this upcoming year. And I say that because of the enormous sedimentary-based copper-silver targets that the company has in Peru uh, and a very minuscule market cap. I checked it out uh, just recently here, and I think it's a little, you know, right around $20 million in U.S. money. So it's a real baby compared to many of the companies that I'm following. Uh, but those are the ones that give you the chance for the biggest percentage gains, and I'm very excited uh, about Hannon's prospects as we head into the new, new year. So I'm really pleased to have Michael with me. I should just say that you can buy uh, Hannon in the States as I have under the symbol H-A-N-N-F and it trades in Canada under the symbol H-A-N. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Jay, always a pleasure to be back with you. Let me just ask you a little bit about the need for copper and silver and a lot of these metals, but especially copper. You're exploring in this uh, sedimentary hosted copper silver belt and it looks like it enormous. And talk to us about the need for copper. Yeah, it's, it's a no-brainer, really, Jay, in, in, in so many ways. I mean, copper supplies are diminishing. And importantly, from my viewpoint, um, the big discoveries are not being made and haven't been made. So, so I, I think... You know, we all talk about strategic and critical metals, but copper is clearly the world's most strategic metal, and I think that will play out over the next year or so. It's it's also the ultimate battery metal um, as we go forward and electrify the world. So it, it, it's a key metal in industrialization and, and electrification, and uh, it's it's got some amazing fundamentals. I mean, the top 10 global copper mines in the world today are the same as they were 10 years ago. So pretty pretty much in order. They're, they're still from Escondida in Chile going down. But the key point is every one of those mines, without exception, is producing much less. Escondida is 30% down on its production level. So, so the big discoveries haven't replaced you know, those that are still existing and those that exist are, are not producing at any of the levels. And then, I mean, you can take it at any level. I mean, the, the, the cop, LME copper inventory is the lowest it's been since 1974. So it's, 
it really is um, in in short supply. The discoveries aren't being made, and and you know it's also said just to, just to finish this conversation that we will consume mine and consume more copper in the next twenty years than we will in the whole history of Earth. So it's um it's, it really is coming to that pinch point between consumption and supply, and 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 we're here to talk about the supply end. You know, China gets involved in so many of these markets, they seem to have a lock on many of them, but it's my understanding they don't really have any large-scale copper deposits there either at this stage. Is that right? No, it's a really good point. Uh, you know, they're, they're such a huge part of uh, this whole metal mix. They they don't control the copper market and they're 50% of the demand. So they will and have are and can, will continue to, to search for copper opportunities worldwide because they have to um, with with such a huge population and, and going through all those fundamentals that I, I spoke about. So it's uh, it's it's not like a, a lot of the other critical metals where China's been able to, to uh, corner the market market copper is is very much in the hands outside of china all right well talk to us a little bit about the progress that you've made uh during the last quarter i know there was a an assay from extensive channel samples it came out from the tabuloso east prospect which is one of many uh, targets on your san martin project uh as i recall those average something like 0.1 percent i believe copper 20 grams of silver over an area of uh, i think well that those samples were taken within an area of eight kilometers by one kilometer if i I have that right. Could you comment on, on what progress you've made uh, over the last couple of months or so uh, on your San Martin project? Yeah, it's, it's been a, a very fundamental three months as we've de-risked this project and, and working towards drilling it. We are one of the top 10 concession holders in Peru and we've covered that. We've got, I've got over 2,000 square kilometres and, and our aim is to go into these new districts in in the world and it happens that we're in Peru and I've had you know, the last 30 years in Peru so I know it well, looking for one of these super scale mineralising systems and, and and we believe we're on one of them in San Martin that, that you spoke about. It's a, it, We have another one also actually in Peru and we'll talk about that now shortly called Previsto, but but San Martin is a sediment-hosted copper system, and, and we've talked about this before. It's, it's like a, a pancake, a very thin part of the Earth's rock mass that uh, has been receptive to, to soaking up the copper, and it soaks up the copper over huge areas. You know, we're talking um, our permits cover 120 kilometres of strike length and, and tens of kilometres across. Now, we, we've been de-risking one of these areas we call Tabalosos and uh, we've we've gone over the last year from finding boulders in creeks to, to finding small outcrops and and then starting to understand the geology um, we've we've flown a half a million dollar lidar survey which has allowed us to penetrate through the thick jungle canopy and and map the rocks over our whole land holding so now we've got to the point where we understand where this copper bearing horizon sits in in the rock mass, in the stratigraphic pile, as, as geologists would call it, and we've 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 like we can become now predictive about finding that at surface only. It, it hasn't been drilled yet, and we're working towards permitting of permitting to drill uh, next year in 2022. We will be drilling, and uh, and the key point is here. This this these results you spoke about, the channel samples, were the first 
average look across the project and 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 over an area that is you know fairly large eight kilometers by one kilometer is not a small area if your listeners can get that in their minds but that's only one percent of our total land holding and and the average of those channels it was 42 channels was was a meter at uh, 2.1 percent copper and 29 grams silver now what what does that actually mean well the the kufa shifa which has been one of the greatest copper discoveries on earth and still is one of the major producers and, and actually is the, the top silver producer on earth today still in, in Poland uh, was was refound because it's been mined uh, and known about uh, for, for thousands of years literally but, but the, in the modern day sense it was first drill discovered in 1957 right down at 650 metres depth and, and that drill discovery was 2 metres at a 1.5% copper so our grades are a little higher, um, their widths are slightly higher but it's on par with that that discovery so the these these grades if they if we can find them over these areas and they're continuous and we start drilling them um, uh, really you know with within the ballpark of creating another super system so so we we, we know now a, a lot more about this system and it really is ready ready for drilling and it's just working towards permitting and we've got very strong community relationships we're going through that uh, that process it's, it takes about a year to get drill permits we've got our archaeological certificates in hand to show that there aren't any archaeological uh, remains out there and, and our work will not affect anything in that way uh, and uh, a big uh, meeting in January with with uh, the local stakeholders a public participation uh, meeting is the next big uh, step and and then uh, and then we can f- file all those different elements and and uh, look to be drilling towards the end of H1 in 2022. Uh, is there any way that you know from your field work uh, that you can sense what the thickness of these beds might be? Well, certainly that those channels were the first, you know, statistically meaningful uh, set of results that we've seen. So so we're seeing the, the mineralized horizon from half a metre to five metres. Uh, the average that we quoted was just uh, the, the metre at, at 2% copper. Um, but you could, it, it certainly is a, a wider zone and does form wider areas at higher grades, and that is also one part of our, our uh, challenge is to focus on the better parts, not the average parts of the system, but the average parts still are within par of um, you know, what we see in other sediment-hosted copper systems worldwide in terms of thickness and grade, and 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 that that that's pretty exciting. You know, we we were quite blown away with these results. Well, we'll certainly be looking for those jury results to give us that third dimension. It's uh, I think that's when the lights will go on with a lot of people if they start to realize that the scope of what you have. Let's talk a little bit about your new porphyry discovery. Um, yeah, it's it's called Previsto, and and that's located a few hundred kilometres south of San Martin. It's it's in the the back arc um, again. We call it so. It's over the Andes into the the, the hill slopes that um, are on the eastern side of the Andes. So it's it's a jungle area also, and and this this is equally is exciting uh, the the San Martin project I should point out is fully funded so uh, Hannon shareholders don't need to fund uh, one dollar into the San Martin project it's being funded by Jogmec the arm of the Japanese government looking to supply metal to to the Japanese industry so we've got a joint venture there where 
where uh, Jogmaker are spending uh, $35 million US to earn 75% over the coming years. So that, that's costing us nothing, um, but uh, we've got a very good uh, joint venture partner there. In Previsto, it's 100% owned by Hannon and, and, and provides you know, some real talk to the stock also, I think. Um, the, this, this is a, a porphyry copper belt that really has not been discovered before. And we over the quarter, we came out with some, a very technical release that got a lot of the, the propeller heads in, in the geological business very excited because we, we've defined this 150-kilometre-long uh, belt of porphyries. We've defined seven intrusives. We've got a great jig. Anomalism at a very early stage. Um, this is a project we've worked up this year, but we've taken age dates. Now you can um, date mi- certain minerals, zircon in this case, uh, and and get some dates. And why are dates important? Because there's specific epochs in the world that were the metal forming events, and 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 that that exists in whatever style of mineralization you're looking at. But if you really want copper and gold in Peru, you want to be in what we call the Miocene epoch or age. And, and the Miocene event is relatively recent. It's 12 to 20 million years. But uh, the, the biggest um, porphyries and epithermal deposits in Peru at, at age. So unlock it, determining whether your system is going to be um, big and, um, and you know, has, has some very good analogs. So it has the potential to be both of those here. So we've got, uh, we've got Miocene ages that weren't known about, um, out in this system. Very, very technical, uh, point to, to take here, but it's a, it's a key point. So, so it's basically like finding a new Andean belt of porphyries. Um, we've got, um, you know, the majority of that area staked and we're just working through the earlier stages there, we've done a lot of the stream sediment sampling and, and, and going up the rivers and mapping the boulders and sampling the boulders. We've got copper up to 20%, for example, in some of those boulders. But the most exciting thing here is that, um, you know, we just uh, had the, the, the tenure has gone from application to granting, which has allowed us to get on the ground and start dealing face-to-face with the local communities to go and do more detailed work. And, and that's what exactly what we're doing at the moment. And, and our teams have just been in there in the last month uh, looking to take salt samples. And, and, and so it, it, it will start to develop very quickly in the new year, this project. And, and uh, I uh, would just love one of these projects in the portfolio, but to have two is um, yeah, a, yeah. A, a big, big pinch moment. Absolutely. And uh, it, uh, do you think you'll get any drilling done? I think not this year, probably, on the porphyry. No, it won't Does be. I mean, so it, it, it won't be. It'll be next year, maybe. Hopefully next year. Yeah, we need to start all that year of uh, permitting that Uh uh, we've gone through over the last year at San Martin, and and uh, yeah, Peru is 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 uh, is not the fastest place on earth to get these things uh, drilled. But but the the truth is uh, with the previous day project that it needs a lot more work to get to to you know put a drill target there tomorrow. But you know it's it's expensive drilling, and um, and you want to make sure you're drilling your best part of the system, and, and we just don't know where that is at the moment. All right. Uh, just one more thing before we close out here. I think it's Peru. Uh, there's a, there was an election. Ended up more to the left and more socialist. And I think some people might be somewhat concerned about, about the political situation, about the political landscape in Peru. But talk to us a little bit about any political concerns that some people might have and, and how do you come to grips with those? 
Yeah, it's it's. I think our our stock was affected by the overall um, negative viewpoint that that the market had on Peru in the last half of last year. But um, it it really highlights just a, a few simple things from from an explorer's point of view. I think Jay, um, and we're, we're seeing this this shift in politics in Latin America and. Uh, Chile's just gone down the same path in the last uh, few weeks with the new Boric government there, and 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 Castillo was elected last or well, this year, <laughs> as we're just finishing it up this year, uh, in 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 Peru. So it really is a very much a swing to the left and a more progressive uh, politics, and that we shouldn't be too surprised, in my viewpoint, that this is happening because we we're seeing it happening all around the world, and it reminds me a lot of. Uh, working in in Europe, where I've worked a lot, also where uh, the social democratic side of politics is is really dominant, and you know there is a huge division between the poorest and the richest in South America, and I think uh, we'll continue to see this swing until that balance occurs over the next um, you know decades. It won't, it can't happen quickly, but this is a this is a rush towards balancing up that inequality, and and if you aren't on board with that, then you're you're going to fail in Latin America. So uh, it, it really, what does it really mean? You must have very strong support at the local level. Um, you must work it up from a grassroots point of view. Um, of course, you've got to get uh, all the various stages of support wherever we are exploring these days from, from that grassroots level to the national political level and all the administrative levels in between and the society levels. But in Peru, the, the local people have now been given a, a huge amount of power to, to veto projects, and we're seeing that across the board. And um, we're, we're going to these areas and, and uh, working with the local people and, and just building up a credible relationship Offering employment, offering sensible work and, and demonstrating that our work does not affect anything from the environmental point of view. It's very low level. Talking about the opportunities that can come and, and that we're, we're a sensible and uh, legitimate company that will offer you know, benefits that, um, that can come in, in environmental and, and, um, and very life changing opportunities for these communities. So we've got some great relationships on the ground in, in San Martin at Tabalosos and, and, um, and we're looking to, to re, well, to build similar relationships at, that we've starting very positively over the last three or four months in Previsto. So it's, it, it really brings it back to just working very, very strongly with local groups. And we saw Bear Creek come to uh, meet Castillo, the, the president of Peru, um, recently. Um, that they, they had a bunch of locals go to Lima and say they wanted this project. And, and it was supported by the by um, Castillo and, and, and his government as a consequence. So you really need to mobilize that support. So I guess just in wrapping up here then, investors need to be watching for in terms of potential drivers for the share price would be to start with, I suppose, your drilling. Will you have some more surface channel samples perhaps? Yeah, we've got uh, a big team there and, and I think we've only put out about half the, the amount of surface information that we, we, we got from San Martin. So there will be a, a lot coming to the table. Really looking forward to those drill results. Uh, probably late this year before we'll get them. Late in H1. So the middle is where we're where we're looking, Jay. Um, Peru's got an amazing ability to 
to put timeframes out, but that's a relatively conservative estimate of um, when we when we hope to be drilling. But uh, but we'll we'll know as we progress. Um, the, another key point is what I I indicated that public participation meeting that is set in January will really set that timeframe in train uh, if if that happens as it should. Michael, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to update us because this is an exciting story, and I do believe, given its share price and all that you have going, this could be one of our biggest winners percentage-wise, at least in uh, 2022. So we'll be watching very carefully for your news and wish you and your team uh, and the company as a whole all the best in 2022. Thank you, Jay. Same to you and, and all your listeners. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Alistair McLeod will be joining me from the UK. He'll be sharing his views on gold. Why does why was gold and silver disappointment 2021 and why he thinks it's likely to do better as we enter this new year? Lion Wine Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times, Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have Alistair McLeod with us uh, for this first show of 2022. Um, today, I want to have him to talk to us about his uh, uh, his December 23rd article, uh, Gold and Silver Prospects for 2022. Uh, also want to get his thoughts about 2021 and why gold was so disappointing. Although, as we heard from, uh, from Michael Oliver a little earlier uh, he felt that gold wasn't all that disappointing if you take a longer-term look at things. So, And he expects that uh, it's going to be very bullish for this year. I sense that uh, Alistair may feel the same way. Uh, Alistair, thanks so much for joining us again. That's very much my pleasure, Jay. It's really good, to, always good to hear from you uh, because I always so much enjoy your every Thursday, your uh, your essays that come out, your articles that really get into uh, get into the nitty gritty and the under, you know, the things that most people don't see or don't look that deeply into what drives the markets. And today we want to, uh, as I just said, we'd like to hear what your thoughts are on gold and silver prospects for 2022. You mentioned uh, at the start of this last article, uh, that is the article on December 23rd, that uh, the key to whatever's going to happen this year will be the interest rate outlook. Um, and I want to ask you about that and get into your, you know, your forecasts or your ideas about 2022. Uh, but maybe first just ask you what, how do you, 
how, how do you uh, explain what seems to be a poor performance for the precious metals in the year in which we've had this enormous amount of money creation? Uh, we've had you know in, uh, inflation rates that are the highest since probably since around the 70s, uh, and you know this whole tremendous disconnect between uh, the well real and negative interest rates. Uh, all of that should be very very bullish for gold, and yet. It hasn't really, you know, it was actually down in the year. So, how do you how do you reconcile that? I think uh, the two things to say. Um, if you look at it in the context of history, I, th I think what you were saying was that Michael Oliver before me was saying that, you know, in the longer term, it's actually yes. been a reasonable year. Yes. And I think I would echo that because um, I would regard it as a period of consolidation and. Um, I don't necessarily recommend people follow charts closely, but uh -huh. it's generally a rule that when you get um, uh, an extensive consolidation period, the move out of it tends to be a lot stronger as a result. So I think to um, look at the performance and say, well, that's terribly disappointing, I think mm -hmm. is just sort of being rather selective in mm -hmm. terms of the overall uh, view. The second thing I would say is that markets are well and truly broken. I mean, you pointed out that we've got very high negative yields on U.S. Treasuries. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I think that as far as the markets were concerned, until very recently, people were thinking that, OK, inflation is a bit more sticky than we first thought. And it's, you know, the Fed obviously made a bit of a mistake saying it was transient. But, um, you know, once the logistics thing is sorted out, it'll all return to normal and we'll be back to mm -hmm. sort of drifting back down towards 2% target and so on. Now, th that is completely wrong. It is a Keynesian, um, uh, uh, a very distorted Keynesian view. And um, one of the things that's most frustrating for an economist such as me is uh, watching the Keynesian narrative just dominate everything. It's yeah. basically wrong. And it's led to markets being uh, broken, in, in, in effect. Now, the reason this is so important is I think in the coming months, maybe even the coming weeks, it will become more apparent to the investment community, the Keynesian investment community, that uh, this idea of um, inflation actually is going to get worse. And the reason it's going to get worse is basically because of all the money creation that's happened over the last two years in particular, and since the great financial crisis um, uh, as well. I mean, if you look at what's happened to uh, M2 money supply, I mean, that's been growing at an enormous rate. I mean, we're looking at annualized rates for nearly two years of just under 50%. Incredible. So that is absolutely incredible. Now, a lot of people have made tentative uh, comparisons with, between the current situation and uh, the inflationary times of the 1970s. Well, I looked back to see uh, what sort of monetary growth we had in the 1970s. And the, at the very, very worst, in the middle of the 1970s, money supply grew by 13.4% in oh, one year. Geez. Now, <laughs> I mean, I mean, so there is absolutely no way that we're going to see an easing of uh, the rise in, in prices because of the enormous amount of stimulus which has been pushed in, not just by the American government, but by every other major government as well. 
And in, in the American case, of course, you've had um, these stimmy checks which yep. put into everybody's bank accounts. And that's had a pretty immediate effect on, on uh, the demand side um, without really the, you know, the, the, the um, production being there to, to meet it because half the production has been shut down either because of COVID or because, um, you know, of logistical problems and all the rest of it. So, um, you know, prices, yes, prices have started rising. I think the last um, uh, CPI figure I saw was, was it 6.2 or 6.8%? 6.8, I believe, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, but that's irrelevant. I mean, I really yeah. do think that um, in the coming months, you're going to see this well over 10% um, mm-hmm. because of these monetary factors which are driving the whole thing and i think this is the thing that uh, you know our keynesian friends just do not understand the other thing that's interesting about the 1970s is that when we went into the 1970s everybody was keynesian i mean they really were um and then as it uh, uh, sort of transpired that um things were going wrong suddenly you found that there were people like milton friedman on right. the television you know people were beginning to listen to the monetarists so yep. um and i suspect we're going to have the same thing happening here when things don't perform as the keynesians expect then I think you'll find that people will turn to other sources of information um, and question the whole Keynesian narrative mm-hmm. and think, well, perhaps there's something behind monetarism, uh, you know, after all. No, I'm not a monetarist um, mm-hmm. because it is not as simple as that. And mm-hmm. I think there's plenty of evidence uh, to, to uh, back that view. Um, but n- nevertheless, I think, you know, the one thing that Milton Friedman said, which is absolutely right, um, is that uh, the origin of inflation is money. It's as simple yep. as that. You know, I mean, if you're going to double the quantity of money, you're going to halve its purchasing power in very broad terms. Mm-hmm. And that's really the situation we're in. So um, I think that, um, you know, coming back to you know, last year, what we saw was um, broken markets, a period of consolidation. The bullion banks had a problem insofar as they had these new Basel III regulations, which in America were introduced in the middle of last year. In London, they were introduced from the beginning of this year, in other words, uh, a day or two ago. Because today is actually the first day. It's not a public holiday here. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Day. Um, and, uh, you know, we're talking about the net stable funding ratio, which um, disadvantages um, banks dealing in derivatives. It disadvantages banks running open positions on their own book. Um, and it disadvantages banks um, taking very large deposits. So you can see that there's a lot of change going on. And uh, I think that the banks have tried to prepare, the, um, prepare themselves for this to a degree. And that has involved suppressing the price of um, gold, silver, any other commodity where they're running a book um, as much as they possibly can in order to recover their short positions. Okay. You know, we've seen this. We we, we saw open interest on Comex being hit every time it sort of poked up a little bit. Um, You know, they came in and they tried to get it back down again. And fortunately for the bullion banks, you've got uh, I can only call them idiotic um, uh, hedge funds who just think in terms of a pairs trade and they don't actually understand that they're just setting themselves up to be ripped off by the bullion banks. But it happens every time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they buy at the top and uh, bullion banks uh, make all the money on the downside. And, uh, yeah. So. 
I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, from a bullion bank's point of view, once a hedge fund has bought it, his next transaction is going to be sell it. So <laughs> what do you do? You encourage him to sell it at a profit to you. you know, yeah. it's, it's actually no more complex than that. You know, Alistair, I don't know if it's true in the UK, but here we're seeing uh, wages going up dramatically as well. And that feeds into the inflation picture as much if not more than it did in the 1970s when the labor market was very strong here. And it was after the U.S. sort of exported its higher-paying jobs around the world. Uh, and then the labor unions were sort of crushed by that. And we've had these, you know, many decades of uh, labor, you know, common labor folks just, just not keeping up at all with the cost of living. And now, of course, uh, they're seeing these, these stimmy checks, as you point out, from Uncle Joe, being sent out to everybody, and they can sit on their couch and not go to work, which means there's less supply in the market, so less supply, but plenty of demand, and away you go. And it seems to me politically, at least the left wing, uh, the left side of our political spectrum here, very much likes that idea, and uh, certainly there'll be a lot of voters that think they do, except that the uh, cost of living is going up faster than their wages. So, I, I, you know, if the, if the politics runs... Uh, towards a restrictive monetary policy, which seems like it might have started a little bit with, um, you know, some of the administration's uh, policies. But uh, in the 70s, as you point out, Milton Friedman comes along, and we had Paul Volcker. Um, and Paul Volcker then tamed the inflation problem, which was threatening to go, I think, get out of hand in the 70s. It was getting out of hand. It could have gotten much worse. Any. But I don't think you see that kind of thing happening, even if we have if we have some people that come along with some common sense about inflation being caused by money, do you? Do you think we another Paul Volcker anywhere to be seen? No, um, I, not at all. Um, I mean, even even Volcker, um, uh, you know, sort of created quite a lot of disruption by jacking up. I mm -hmm. think he jacked up the. Um, uh, the Fed funds rate to 19.1% um, yeah. in the middle of uh, 1981. Um, and that really sort of killed the whole savings and loans industry. So, yes, yes, I remember so, it well. You know, but this time, this time with the amount of uh, debt in the system, I mean, both government debt and private sector debt, non-financial uh, uh, um, private sector debt, um, you know, any increase in interest rates is going to be very, very painful for heavily indebted economies. And it's not just America. I mean, look, at Japan is, is, is in a far worse position. Um, and, uh, you know, in China, it's unbalanced because you've got a relatively low uh, government borrowing. I think it's around about 50% of GDP. But the mm. private sector is absolutely up to its eyeballs in debt and we've already seen that begin to fall over with uh, Evergrande so mm -hmm. um, you know no the answer is that um, I think that they've got themselves into a huge great hole they cannot afford to see interest rates rise um, to the sort of levels which compensate people for the loss of purchasing power of holding um, fiat currencies. So uh, what that basically means is that, um, you know, the, the rise in interest rates for a start, it, it, it is unstoppable. I mean, but what I can see is that the central banks will get together and they will be determined to stop it, but that won't work. It will mm -hmm. merely delay, delay matters. Um, and I think that um, inevitably what then happens is that we start having 
bankruptcies, we start seeing um, uh, 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 investment flows reversing. I mean, when uh, the the yield on the 10-year starts going through 2% and looking like it's going to go through 2.5% and people beginning to sort of question Keynesian um, orthodoxy and saying, well, you know, this isn't true anymore, um, you know, this is a new world, you can see that uh, the foreign ownership of uh, U.S. equities, which um, the private sector owns over nine trillion of now, wow, um, wow, the, wow, there wow. are also. I mean, if you take the total, it's around about fourteen trillion because you've got um, sovereign wealth funds and all the rest of it owning uh, U.S. equities as well. Mm. I mean, when they start selling, I mean, just watch out. This, you know, why? I mean, why are they holding U.S. equities? I can tell you, the only answer is to make a profit. They're not mm-hmm. told by their regulators, you have got to have exposure in that market. No, the regulators will tell them they've got to have exposure in their own domestic market. Foreign yeah. markets are for extra profit. And the moment that goes, you're out. So this is, um, I think that the interest rate scene is desperately important. Right. And we were talking just before um, we came on air uh, about the comparison with the 1970s. Yeah. I mean, if you look at M2 money supply, it has been increasing for around about um, 19, 20 months at an annualized rate of nearly 50%. Yeah, it's incredible. So it's, you know, the, 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 the quantity of, of M2 money has um, almost doubled. The, um, if you look back in the 70s, when we had this real inflation square, which led to 19.1% Fed funds rate yeah, at the yeah. end of the decade, then uh, the maximum rate of monetary growth during that period was 13.4%. That's incredible. Today we've had two loads of 40 plus percent on the trot. I mean, you know, this... Alistair. Alistair, we're just about out of time already. I can't believe it. But uh, you mentioned in your in your article the financial markets will be unprepared for the consequences of massive currency and credit expansion that has taken place and interest rates. And I have to just say, with interest rates so low, the pension funds have gone out in the equity markets. Now what happens if the equity markets start melting down? You know, what kind of a panic is that going to put the Fed into? I think put yourself into the shoes of a, of a pension fund or an insurance company. Yeah. Right. I think they're going to want to pick up on nominal yields rather than, um, you know, uh, buying equities cheap. Buying equities cheap is not a thing you do in a bear market. But no. if you're a pension fund, you're investing in the long term and you are trying to pick up the compounding effect of a decent nominal yield. So I think that that's probably where they will put their money. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, an, it's a very, very tricky situation. Very tricky indeed, and we're tricky. Time is tricky. We're out of it already. I can't believe it. Uh, I guess it means, I mean, how can you be bearish on gold for 2022? It didn't perform all that well, 2021. It did the previous couple of years. So long-term, it's done very well. But your outlook for gold and the silver, you believe, even even uh, more bullish on, right? Yes. Well, I think the thing about silver is that you can add in that it is a major beneficiary of this move away from fossil fuels. I mean, if you just look at the price of other similar right. um, things like uranium, like uh, lithium, I mean, the prices have just shot up in uh, 2021. Um, this is going to be the year for silver on that basis. And of course, on top of that, you've got monetary demand building as the currencies uh, find that uh, their purchasing power declines. All right. We're going to have to leave it go at that, unfortunately. Alistair, thank you so much for being with us. And we'll look to do it again sometime soon, I hope. Um, all the best and Happy New Year to you.
Uh, all right, folks, that is it for this week. Next week, uh, Doug Casey, Chen Lin, and Quentin Henning will be with me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Firefox Gold is actively exploring in Finland, where recent discoveries have sparked a new gold rush. Firefox controls a major portion of a prospective gold belt, giving the company a distinct advantage for exploration and strategic partnerships. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, will put Firefox on the crest of the coming wave of gold discoveries. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates.